Welcome to the Everything Music Ed podcast. I'm your host, Tom Borning. In this podcast, we'll hear from educators, composers, conductors, musicians, and even percussionists about their experiences in learning, teaching, and performing music. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram to find out about upcoming episodes. And be sure to subscribe and follow and rate the podcast on whatever platform you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, suggestions, or show ideas, you can email me at everythingmusiced at gmail.com. In today's special episode, we talk to singer-songwriter Chris Trapper. As a member of the band The Push Stars, He's had music appear in movies like There's Something About Mary, Me, Myself, and Irene, Devil Wears Prada, and as a solo artist, he's had music in the movies Some Kind of Wonderful and August Rush. He's toured with musicians Colin Hay, Martin Sexton, Pat Benatar, and Rob Thomas. So let's just say I am very fortunate that he agreed to be on my podcast. Um, and I think you're going to be really happy about what we talk about. We talk about all of those things, plus we talk about how he started his life in music, singing in choirs in school, and also choirs in church. If you've never heard Chris Trapper's music before, do yourself a favor and check it out. Plus, go to ChrisTrapper.com and check out his touring schedule. It's all over the country, and when he comes near you, go check him out. I hope you enjoy Chris Trapp. Thanks so much for doing this, man. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be with you. It's good yeah. to do it. Yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm actually, I'm just, I'm really excited that it's actually you and not whoever hacked your Chris Trapper account or whatever. <laughs> oh man, you're telling me. I, 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 that, that, so, so about uh, yeah, that's about about a year ago. My, my Facebook fan page got just just literally get, got taken over by somebody, yep. and so my my manager and I were actively trying to change passcodes, while the hacker was changing passwords against us. Yep. And it was like, wow, it's if if it, it felt so imposing. It was just ah. Uh, yeah, it happened to my cousin. Same thing on Facebook. Someone just like took it over. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's just yeah, it just feels gr- just gross. <laughs> wow. And you know, you know, so it's it it was a major tool that that we use constantly to promote shows, and then you know you have to rethink your your, your whole business model at that point because because Facebook you know Facebook was right where. Anybody who listened to me, that's where they would be. So, yep. All right. Well, I am I am here with Chris Trapper. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Chris. Chris is a phenomenal singer, phenomenal songwriter, and I can't wait to hear about the beginnings of where where you came. From. Like, when did you realize in your life that music? was special or what do you remember about early childhood music education? Uh, That's a great question. Well, I grew up in a pretty dysfunctional family with alcoholism. And uh, so, but, 
It was also a super fun family. It was a weird combination. Maybe maybe a lot of people have a similar story, but uh, but you know my my house. It was me and five siblings aside from me, and uh, we were all making our way. And I remember that uh, I had a had a bad stutter too in high school. And so when I found the, the guitar, it just became an escape for me. And my older brother taught me a couple chords on it. And my sister g- gave me her guitar that she never used, you know, just sitting in the corner of her bedroom. And I just remember that that, that, that was how I escaped. I come home from school. I never fit in. I, I just realized a couple, this is it's a very whiny story for for somebody my age group to, uh, to, to say, but, but, uh, both my sons play football for for the, their high school. I have two boys, and uh, I remember I I just realized a couple nights ago that I never went to one football game in my high school. So it was a funny feeling, but but I just remember that I just felt like a I wasn't really invited on any level, or or never felt you never felt included with that was accessible, and then b. I was part of a whole different scene by then where I played music, I sang in, in choirs and so Yeah, so when you say choirs like church choirs or school choir or uh both actually. Both my my first paying gig ever was in an Episcopal church choir, Calgary Episcopal church choir outside of Buffalo because in Buffalo, New York in a town called Williamsville. It was my first paying gig that my high school teacher connected me with uh she said chris i think i think you're you're good enough they want they want good singers and they pay so i'd make a check for for 250 a month to sing choral music at the age of 16 so that that's kind of a cool thing and so when you were young i mean did you ever take guitar lessons or you just sort of self-taught yourself yeah i'm self-taught so you said i never took one lesson uh my brother basically showed me how to play the theme from Batman, which is <laughs> very, very simple. He said, Chris, you can play this. It's only two strings. And so I played it over and over and over and over again until I got to, I got it sounding like Batman. And then, and then I realized if I moved a finger here that you get a slightly different version of Batman than a finger here, you get another different version of Batman. And so then, then suddenly I just kept playing and playing and playing. And then I learned how to play a lot of Simon and Garfunkel songs, and you know I learned some Don McLean songs and just just various. Uh, I just remember I, I was obsessed with acoustic guitar when I first when I first started playing. I'd try and find records that that had, even if it was a rock band, I would look for their one one acoustic song, and that would be my favorite always. It's the fact that my job you know, now is basically playing, playing acoustic guitar places that that's, that's full circle, you know? Uh, so is there anything, uh, you growing up that you can think of, like maybe you, you wished you had taken guitar lessons or you had wished maybe in school you had had some, some different type of music training that would have changed your trajectory or your career or helped you more in your career where you are now. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, I I have to say, on some level, I think doing things how I did them worked out. Only in that, 
I've made a living off of music for 20 plus years now. And it's, you know, I haven't been like, like hugely strapped very often for money. You know what I mean? Like, 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 so it's so a life has been very good for me. You know, I've done things on my own terms. The, the, the only thing that I, I wish I did school wise or education wise was take a business class because, um, that was one thing my, you know, so I, I formed a band in 1995 or 94 and we signed a record deal within about 18 months, but, but we made all the classic mistakes that, that if you read a music business book, it says what not to do. That's what we did. So for instance, we, we signed a manage the management contract in the back of a car after drinking all night at a gig and uh, that, that kind of thing, stuff that you know you shouldn't do or you shouldn't have done. But then, but then you're, you're kind of thrust into a gig where you're like, I have to figure out how to monetize music. And that's a, it's, it's tricky. And uh, I could have probably saved about 10 years by, by just taking one business class and just learning like when to hire a lawyer, when not to, just, just all, all, all that kind of stuff. In terms of music, like, I, th- I think it's, I think it's a case of what flows naturally from you can, can be the, uh, the most instinctual and kind of the best part of you if you're able to let it go. Whereas if I, I think if I had more training, a lot of my friends who were trained in music, they quit music because they, they saw it almost too scientifically or something. So yeah, sure. It's really easy to get bound by, uh, well, you can't go to that chord there because that doesn't work. Oh, well, maybe it sounds cool, actually. So it really does work. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, there's definitely times when I wish I had more musical, musical, uh, not diversity, but but just the the ability to kind of find more chords. Because there's something that I might hear in my head sometimes that I want to bring a song to to a different place, but I just don't have the knowledge to to where it, it should go. Whereas when I listened to a Paul Simon record, uh, it sounds like he knew exactly. He'll throw in very exotic chords, and not just one. Like I can throw in one, like so I'll know how to find one exotic chord, but I can't. But I can't. I can't do like uh, like divert to to a totally different section of majorly different chord changes and stuff. I I always go back to my safety zone of the three chords and the truth kind of thing. So. Yeah, well, you're um, you're absolutely selling yourself short, but I I get what you're saying because I, I I I I was listening to earlier today, like something like the accident, for example, uh, a great piece of music. Like I, if anything that any of my music teacher friends or whoever listens to this podcast, uh, look up Chris Trapper. Um, uh, some great music, just a great songwriter. We'll get more into that later. But uh, the I, I I listen to like the guitar part you play on the accident, and and I'm thinking about okay, you like you have like a finger style going on, and then you're singing over it, and I've seen you sing that live too. And so mm. like the there's no way I could do like I'm not a great guitar player. I'm like a major hacker on guitar, anyways, but. I just know 
there's like that to be able to do that and then sing over the top of that is I'm, I'm pretty in awe of that whenever I see you do those type of things like that. So don't don't sell yourself short. Um, Well, it's, I I was just thinking as, as you said that, like, uh, so what, what happened was, was I sang, I sang choral music through college. So I went to, went to a music school for, for a couple of years and so I sang choir and opera, and so when I dropped out and joined a band and moved to Boston, and you know at that time I knew so many more chords only because I was singing classical music constantly and and uh, classical choral pieces and operas. And so and so back then, if I play a demo or, or cassette of songs that that I wrote at the age of twenty. The, the chord changes are much more complex than what I'm capable of writing now because that was just what was in my musical consciousness then. Whereas then, remember what? Remember, I got really into John Prine when I was maybe 23 or 24, and he would always joke about the fact that he only knew three chords or four chords, and he would just make such just beautiful music. So I started to kind of drop the idea then that I needed to know so many more chords. And I just started to think, but my dad would always say to me, if I play him, him a new song, you know, I say, keep it simple, stupid. Uh, my dad used so... to say the same thing to me. Yeah. Classic. <laughs> yes. Yeah, classic. So, but, but I, but so I think that I started to kind of take some of the pressure off myself to, to be a musical, you know, composer from like the 1600s and just loosen up and simplify so a song like the accident i was doing actually more complicated pieces before you know way back the way back in the day and uh it's when i play those those old demos i have no idea how to play them anymore i couldn't even figure it out probably so (laughs) well so (laughs) So you sort of left school. You had like a, if I'm remembering the story correctly, you had like a a band from like high school or something, and then you you college college, college. and you and you opened up for some people. And this is this is and then right, and then it was from there like the band sort of fizzled out or whatever, and you moved to Boston and then started working in a hotel or something. Am I am I I'm not making that up, right? Something like that. No, you. No, you're exactly right. So, so my band was uh, we were one of the t- top two bands on our college campus. It, there were only three bands on our campus, so it wasn't a great accomplishment. But we got we we got cocky, so we said Let, let's move to Boston and try and make it, which was a big which was a big leap from Buffalo back then, because we were all kind of suburban and country kids, and we moved to Boston and. Uh, I just remember, like, that I picked up in the Boston Phoenix. Like, we grabbed a Boston Phoenix, as you know, being on Cape Cod, that that was the art arts arts bible for for decades and decades. And it's the Boston Phoenix used to put out the Boston Band Guide, which was a which was a once a year listing of all the Boston bands. And I just remember it said over three thousand bands on the cover, and uh. It was much different than the three bands from college. So, 
that that was a big wake up call. And I was telling somebody a couple of nights ago that we, we used to stand in Kenmore Square. That this first band of mine, we we had we had ambition, but but no game plan whatsoever. But we just try spontaneous things to, to see if it worked. Is we brought we brought Sony Walkmans to Kenmore Square with with our demo in the Walkmans. They would just stop random people on, on the street and say, hey, would you mind checking out our, our song real quick? We have a show at the channel in in like two weeks or something like that. <laughs> and, and it never really worked. But 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 like we like we only played one show every six months. We were like, why aren't we getting anywhere? And, and, and it just we, we just didn't have a good strategy. So two of the guys in, in that band, it was called Awake and Dreaming, they they had girlfriends back in Buffalo, so they they moved home, and then by that time I'd started working at at, at the Copley Plaza. I just I stumbled in, into a decent job there, as a like like food and beverage storage guy. But but for you know I I had healthcare benefits. I, I had had a good salary for my age group. Like my bandmates were were working at the Lowe's movie theater in, in Copley Square Mall. Uh, so, so yeah, so that's at the hotel. I just kind of let, let go of the musical dream and I didn't know what I was doing at, at, at that point in time. It was just, uh, I, w- I was very comfortable. I paid my roommates rent like half the time I lived in a house with, uh, five other guys hmm. at that time. Wow. And, uh, and then I, but, but I kept writing songs all the time. So it wasn't necessarily, I didn't have a target of, if I, if I have to have a career, I just did it to do it. I think I did it like initially because I had a hard time talking to people, and so songwriting became a way for me to kind of meet girls and to d- develop friendships and uh, to bond with guys in a way that, like, kind of if you're a sports guy, you're not going to bond necessarily that deeply right away. And whereas music, you can sit and jam with somebody, and you can feel like that they're your long lost brother right away. It's, and, and that, that for me was a beautiful thing. Yeah. So then, so then, uh, sort of fast forward and your dad says, Hey, go ahead and keep playing your instrument and, uh, you know, try, try, try making music your, your way of life or something like that. And then you go record some tunes and all of a sudden the push stars sort of comes, comes together. And I'm sort of going on fast forward there, but, but then to me, like, then all of a sudden, not only does like Push Stars, you know, you guys record some tunes, but then all of a sudden you're like, you got tunes in some movies and you got tunes on like, you know, TV shows and stuff. Like, how did that like just go from like zero to 90? It seems to me like it went really fast, but maybe I'm mistaken. Well, I think the part it's, I mean, I think the part that, that goes public is very very fast, but with part behind the scenes is not that fast because we we probably uh, I think we signed. What happened was we we kind of uh, I knew a guy from I I had decided. My dad encouraged me. Both my parents loved the fact that I could play and write, and they 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 like they always encouraged it. So I was very fortunate in that sense. So when my dad encouraged me to go for it. I quit my job and just something like something like clicked for me. I think I, I, I got paid for a gig at, 
you know, an open mic night. And it was that connection of money for, for something I love doing that clicked. And I was like, okay, I just need to like, like, like pause and repeat, pause and repeat, pause and repeat. So that's why I kept doing it. I just kept booking any gigs that I could possibly get. I'm, I met a drummer from Newton, Auburndale, Massachusetts, Ryan McMillan. And so he and I started jamming. He had a very positive attitude, which was also super important because a lot of people in music uh, can get very negative. Like, like that's never going to happen. You're never, it's, it's like, like that time the, the big goal was the record deal. Like that was the classic thing that, everybody shot for but but it was long distance and and very 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 low odds and i met ryan and the second night that we hung out together he's like your songs are so good i'm gonna get you a record deal in two months and that was his attitude he was like a uh like cockeyed optimist but at the same time that energy and enthusiasm is transferable, you know what I mean, and and it's it was a great feeling, and so I had had a friend of my other friend, who worked at a recording studio called Dreamland Recording in Woodstock, New York, which was a real like, like great studio at that time that they were they were recording, you know Buffalo Tom and Joe Jackson and lots of really good good artists, and so Dan said why don't why don't you bring the drummer. Yeah, we'll cut some demos here. I'll play bass, and then, and then we walked away from that session with a demo that we all loved, and we were like, "Do, do you guys think that? Do you think we just became a band by accident?" And so, Dan moved to Boston, and we just we kind of took the attitude that got already set forth of just play gigs, try and make money, play gigs, make money, and so we started doing that, and. Dan had known a manager from the studio that he worked at, somebody who managed a band called The Figs. You know, so he he passed our demo to this manager. This manager liked it, liked it. He was able to get us a showcase for Terry Ellis, who started Chrysalis Records. And Terry had started a record label called called Imago Records. So when we signed with them, we got a deal was a just a distribution deal of, and they paid us 25 grand and that was of course spent in like a week with, with recording and mastering and that that kind of stuff and so that was just an indie deal it was a one-off we could leave at any time and and just then i think we got a lawyer who who had climbed on board suddenly just all this stuff happened at once it was like we got interest from a publishing company, and then another person. Then what what happened was was we started playing gigs in New York City uh, frequently, you know, because we had this a good amount of drive and ambition. So, so we started just just booking shows on our own, finding gigs, and I remember that there there was a certain point when I would come back to Boston and have a bunch of business cards in, in my pocket. And as we kept playing there, the business cards got progressively more, the more legitimate. Where suddenly it was like Sony Music and like uh, 
and uh, Atlantic Records and different people showing up. So, so, and from there, we had a showcase for for a bunch of labels, and there were two, two labels that 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 made us good offers: Columbia and Capital. And we went with Capital because the president of, of the label, Gary Gersh, who had managed Counting Crows, he seemed to take a particular interest in us. Where we met with him personally and sat with him. And uh, so that that was our thinking then, and so that's that that was a time period of maybe like three or four years where there's a lot of stuff be, being thrown at us. We would get offered, we, we got offered a Bud Light ad campaign. We got offered a Coca Cola ad campaign. We got we got a couple songs in, in different movies. We got we would get free clothes from 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 different people and. Uh, different different chains and just it, it was uh because back then it seemed like what what the thought was was that they're basically waiting for the next big thing it's when you sign a record deal you you're potentially that and so back then you know because the record sells it if you were hooting the blowfish you you could finance a hundred baby bands because you're making so much money back then so um so yeah like like that was a good time and then reality like like i remember being being in a meeting with the president of of capital record well well, this is i'm going to tell two two quick stories Uh, my roommate back then was garrett dutton uh g love and special sauce the the lead singer and he signed a record deal maybe in like 1994 95 so when he lived with me Remember, he had co- come back from a tour. He was working constantly, and uh, he, I sensed a little sadness in him because he was just gone so much and had no, no real, no real roots planted. And and then uh, remember, I was, I was in a meeting with, with Gary Gersh from Capital, the president back then, and he said. You know, you guys are gonna have to tour, you know, eight months a year. And at that time, we all had girlfriends at home, and we all had, uh, you know, roots planted. And there was a certain recognition that that you know our life was was about to change, you know, drastically, where long term friendships w- would be less less nourished, but we would know a lot of new people and. You meet lots of people in different places, different towns, different artists, different bands, and so uh, that was a real kind of pinnacle moment. You know, recognizing that that life w- was about to change not not in terms of fame or success, but just in terms of lifestyle. Hmm. Anyway, the, there's a long answer to yeah. That no, question. no, I, I like to hear. <laughs> I'm just always so curious because then, so then my next. question, I have a, really two questions, but I guess you personally, after after the Push Stars um, sort of stopped making as many, even though you guys came out with an album recently, once you sort of did started doing more stuff just on your own, and right about that time, or maybe, I don't know, but it seems like the music industry drastically changed in terms of, you know, you kept talking about record deals, and it's like... <laughs> who gets a record deal now? Like, oh, what is that? I know. <laughs> you know, I so, know. Know. so, um, 
you know, because then it was all of a sudden like I remember, you know, it. I used to. I was. I was the person who always laughed at this joke. By the way, when you said it, I heard you say it a couple times. And you'd be like, "Oh, I, I, oh, Chris, I really like your music. I, uh, I, um, I bought, I, I bought a couple of your CDs and I burned them and sent, gave a bunch to my friends or whatever." And I, yeah. I always loved that joke because then all of a sudden, you know, when you could do that, then it's all of a sudden like, "Oh, I used to be able to make music selling albums, and now I get, you know, one cent." per 100 plays on Spotify or whatever it is. It's, it's, you know, I mean, that's just gotta be such a tough because I, I, I listen, you know, knowing that I was coming up to not that honestly, I listen to your music all the time, but, um, um, but uh, I'm feeling those pennies. Oh, I know. Those pennies add up. Yeah, I know. I was like, you probably have like, you know, you could probably, your last cup of coffee was on me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I got a, I got a brand new fancy pool. Uh, it's a kiddie pool, yeah. but, but it's a beautiful pool. Though, so. <laughs> yeah. So um, I guess, I mean, do you, do you like that? Love that? Is it, I mean, it seems like you're rolling with the punches pretty well. I mean, it seems like you're, you're doing a lot of rec- you're still recording a lot and you're you're able to use the resources you're able to you know send off recordings to other people you know send off a recording to Colin Hay and have him to sing background on you know a song or whatever yeah. um yeah yeah so do you like you mean, like I- where the music i mean you're adjusting to it but you know what are the what are the challenges you have with it I think there's always something gained and something lost. So for me, I remember when, when Napster first showed up and, and there was some, like some New York Times article, my manager was like, you're going to represent the kind of anti-Napster. You're going to be included in the anti-Napster movement. So you'll be one of the artists in this big ad saying like, like shame on you, Napster. And I remember at, at that time, you know, I definitely get a certain ignorance to it in terms of, of technology because I just, I just wasn't that interested in stealing music then. But I did recognize that the fact that if that's the technology, then you can't stop it. It's like when, when cassettes came along, people could, could record a record and, and you'd have a separate copy of it on a cassette. And, and so technology d- doesn't typically go backwards with much effectiveness so i think at that time i had a good sense of where the business might be going the other thing which which i think is an overarching narrative of 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 the push stars was that we were all a little older so we had all had real jobs and so we we always looked at any day that we we could make a living from playing music as an absolute blessing because it's one more day away from your last day job. So I think that in that respect, uh, no matter what happened, as long as you, you could get by, you were always pretty happy. You know what I mean? So, so, sure. so, so in terms of like downloads and, and, and technology and stuff, like there's, there's definitely something gained and something lost. Like, like, uh, and I could go into each facet like specifically, but but it's it's just like 
uh, d- during COVID, a company contacted me and said, we want you to, to record uh, your songs into your phone, send it to us, you will print it on vinyl and sell it as, as exclusive vinyl to, to your fan base. So I thought I'd sell a couple of them, and I sold a ton of them. I was doing it for, for, for three weeks straight, recording songs in, into my phone. And that was something that obviously would not have been possible years ago. And I have a couple of songs on, on Spotify that are in the millions of streams region. So that's that that is paid real money, and that's always kind of magic money because it, it, it comes from the air. I didn't ship anything. I didn't really do anything to to get it, aside from write and record something, but that, that was 10 years ago or five years ago. So I think that uh, I just feel blessed to... I, I kind of take it a day a day a day at a time and and try and have a long term game plan, but but recognizing that there's going to be a lot of a lot of shifts in just how how the business functions. And uh, so I think what when you said rolling with it, that is a perfect way to put it. Yeah, I like speaking of rolling with it, and you had brought up you know during COVID, uh, you. It's, this almost sounds negative, but it's meant to be positive. But I swear, I swear, you were you, you were like my wife and I's soundtrack of COVID. Like I, I don't know, I, I actually I shouldn't say I don't know why. I do know why. It's because you did those concerts on Facebook Live or whatever, and mm-hmm. you know, and I had, you know, I saw you years ago open up. Yeah, a long time ago, I saw you open up for Martin Sexton on Martha's Vineyard. A long, long oh, yeah, time yeah. ago. I'm a, I'm a big Martin mm-hmm. Sexton fan, and yeah, um, me too. I've you know, you you uh, you've opened for Colin Hay, The Pretenders this past summer, right? Uh, Pat Benatar. Oh, that's what I meant. Pat Benatar. Ah, that's yeah, what yeah. I meant. It begins with a P. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. Close. Uh, that's close. Pat Pat Benatar and. Um, um, Rob Thomas in the past. I'm sure there's some other great people I'm way leaving out. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, I've seen you open for a bunch of people. I've gone to some shows where you're just, you know, you're you're the man, and uh, I, mm-hmm. I I love them. But uh, so I had a bunch of tunes, like um, either that I had uh, purchased or uh, copied on someone's CD. No, I'm just kidding. I uh, or I uh, <laughs> I. Uh, um, you know, on Spotify playlists. But the cool thing about those Facebook uh, concerts that you did, you'd play a song like by the Push Stars that I hadn't heard, like Cadillac or, um, you know, some yeah, other yeah. tunes like that. Or like, there was like, a, it was like, a, it's a rose, it's got a rose in it. It's a slow piece, Irish Rose. Something. Wild Irish Rose. Oh, man. Wild, beautiful. Wild Irish Gosh, rose. that's beautiful. Oh. Right. And so, so I just yeah. a bunch of tunes like that that I was like, wait, what is that tune? So I'm like, look at them. So my, my Chris Trapper playlist went from like here to like, whoo, you know, and, and I'm, <laughs> I like during COVID, you know, like at the end of Spotify, you get like who you most listen to, Chris Trapper, number one of mine. Oh, that's just awesome. You're saying, so you're saying that I should be hoping for another pandemic is what you're saying strategically. For, yeah, be. for me, anyways, you'd be <laughs> just, to add some, just to add some downloads yeah. to people's playlists. Yeah, you'd be able to get like two coffees if you have fun. Nice, yeah. nice. Yeah. Uh, but um, anyways, um, so I I love those concerts that you did, man. That was uh, that was great. I find that a lot of people appreciated 
artists doing that and singers doing that and songwriters doing that because I think it was, it was just the way that you, you felt connected. I can remember like, like for me, but I had talked, there's a friend of mine named Amy Gerhartz, who's a singer songwriter amongst other things. She does a lot of things like life coaching and stuff like that. But we were playing a festival for an artist named Pat McGee who throws a festival called, uh, it's, it's called down the hatch in kill devil Hills, North Carolina. And it, it was, I did it the summer before COVID happened. And Amy was saying to me, have you ever done a live stream before? And I was like, not really. I know, listen, I knew what it was, but, uh, but, but she was saying to, to me, here's how you do it. And don't charge people. Just ask for tips. And, uh, you, you, you'll be surprised because you, you have a fan base in lots of, lots of cities that you, you probably don't get to tour to. They've been to once or twice. So those people would, would like to see you and hear you. And it's funny because six months later, the world shuts down. And right away, I was like, oh, I, I already know the formula for doing live streams and what, what to do. So that became a really fun thing for me me to do just a way to kind of have a distraction, something to look forward to, something to plan on. So I'd have to learn a, one of my old records and learn the songs from it. And oh, I love that. I love that you did like a couple of, yeah, you did like the whole album of like, uh, Oh, what, what's my favorite one. And of course that was like the one that I missed. Uh, <laughs> I'll the, do it right now. The last leaf falls. That was like, that's, I think that's, oh, I think yeah, that's yeah. like my favorite album of yours. Like, Top to oh, top awesome. to bottom, I love it. But uh, that's that's, awesome. that's funny, and uh, yeah, of course I missed that particular show. Uh, but I'll do it again—a private show for you. Just <laughs> just that record, with, with, uh, the whole thing, start to finish. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there there's a certain point. Sorry to interrupt, but but the, there's a certain point with, with the whole thing. So, so I've been with other artists, or, or I've been with p- people. Like, so I know that the the uh like the live stream thing became very cathartic for people not not just from me but but from every artist that, like who did them because you suddenly you recognize the fact that the, that the singer you knew only from the stage had a home and uh and were just normal it just just a you know a normal life like, like you have so, so i i think that there's something beautiful about that uh but then after a few months, I was like, I remember I was sitting in my bathtub watching a video on YouTube of ducks mating. You know, I was like, oh my God, I got to get back on tour because, because I'm, I'm obviously bored senseless. <laughs> yeah. No, that was, that was just awful. Um, so August Rush, obviously, you know, being, yeah. being nominated for a Grammy, um, mm-hmm. obviously a pretty incredible opportunity. Um, yeah. So uh Chris wrote a piece called uh this this time I believe right this time right that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah. this time. Yeah, this time. It was in the movie August Rush and someone else sang it though who in the on the album or whatever who who's... Yeah, the actor the actor Jonathan Reese Myers sings. Right, it. right. Uh, um but you but did, you wrote did a, the did a bang up job. Yeah, yeah, you did. No, it sounded very good. Um, but you wrote the song and so you were nominated for a Grammy. Um, but I mean, how, how did well, that I wasn't nominated up? for a Grammy. Right, the album. For, I wasn't nominated for, or, right. Right, the soundtrack. Right, was, yeah. yeah. So I got to go to the Grammys to, to kind of represent the soundtrack there. Yeah, I mean, that must have been uh, crazy. So, 
how did that happen? It was through so when when the push stars were at Capitol, we had uh the Farrelly brothers had been fans of ours. So they, they put a couple songs of ours in different movies of theirs. Is the woman who ran soundtracks at Capitol, she left and started her own business later on a music kind of sing, uh like uh like she's a music supervisor and so she basically and so her, her star rose and rose and rose and rose she did like the Sex and the City movie she did but she's in all these those huge movies but so she contacted me one day and she said uh Chris this is movie August Rush it, it stars Robin Williams and Carrie Russell and a few other people and she, and she said it's it's based around music, and uh, there's one song that that they've sent it to that they need for the film, and it's a very targeted song for for one specific scene. Or it's actually two scenes, but it had to say something specific to to the plot. And she said, "We've sent the like the script to, to a few heavy hitter songwriters, and nobody's nailed it yet." So basically, I became the the kind of last call for alcohol at the bar songwriter who uh kind of last chance songwriter so did you get to did you get to see the movie before you do that type of thing no or? i read the oh you read the script no I, yeah i read the script and and i read it in my uh you went in my backyard with my guitar and started writing the, the song i finished it in 20 minutes the whole thing and I remember at, at that time I, I submitted like three or four things to to films that it, that had gotten rejected, and so I started to feel like I started to have that vibe like ah, oh, whatever I'll send this in it's not going to happen who cares? And so I sent it in, and I remember the next day I was getting phone calls from the the director, from the the music supervisor, the producer. Uh, all these people saying that that I'd nailed the song, and and so that that was a great day, and it, and it was it was funny because it was all I literally w- went straight from the the script to my guitar. It was like I put the script down, grabbed my guitar. And so the first thing that that came to me from the script happened very naturally, and uh, and it worked. So so I I could, I could be full of baloney on this one, but. Did you, I don't know if it's Open G or Dadgad or whatever. It, it don't, it's Dadgad. Right, yeah. right. Okay. Um, the tuning on the guitar. But the, the cool thing about that in my memory, I've, I've seriously, I've only watched a movie once and it was years mm-hmm. before I even put together that you were on it, anything like that. Yeah, yeah. But my memory of that movie, the kid who's like Haley Joel Osment or something like that, right? Yeah. I, Freddie Highmore. Oh, it wasn't him. It wasn't Haley. It was, it was like the kid in it. What, what was his name again? The the lead actor is Freddie Highmore. Oh, Freddie. Hi- August okay. Rush. Oh, okay. The, the kid. The kid. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know why I thought it was yeah, him. But anyways, he's now a grown up. Right, but he but he was um like some playing some tunes in the street, and I feel like he was playing the guitar with Dad Gad tuning. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Is that just yeah? Well, is that just happenstance? Well, no, so no. So the script had directives saying that that the the style of music that August plays, August Rush, is Michael Hedges inspired. Because you know Michael Hedges, he was no. He's recording artist artist for for Wyndham Hill, who was kind of avant garde avant garde new new age guitar player acoustic guitar but he'd, he'd do cool things with his hands and his fingers and tunings and harmonics especially that mm. that was a big mm. thing for him and so the script actually called for that that sound guitar playing oh so that's why i threw it into my song because i wanted it to to fit the script and i knew michael hedges music really well because i had always loved him and he died really you know, young, but but uh, had great records and great, just uh, cool tunings, cool pieces, and yeah. So oh, neat. That's I, I, I always. I'm glad I got to ask you that. Yeah, I never would have been able yeah. to know that. Like again, I'm just going literally. We've watched the movie one time, and then I remember being like, "Oh, he's yeah. playing that. He's clearly." I actually did. That was another thing I did during COVID. Me on a hacker guitar, never ever playing dad dad gad. I tuned my guitar to Dad Gad, and I was like, and watched like a YouTube video of you playing this time, and I'm like, I'm gonna freaking learn this piece, and I did. I learned how to play. Uh, oh, that's awesome! This time, that's so uh, cool. On guitar, it was really fun. Um, that's so awesome. It's funny, like, uh, it's funny because when you learn a new tuning on, on guitar, it it, it it totally makes you look at the instrument completely differently. Is the Dad Gad tuning? I I did a. Uh, I've been doing cruises for the past few, uh, past couple, well, in 2019 and then this past year. And it's basically a fan club cruise where, where people go and I, I play a few concerts. We all have, like, have dinner together on a big ship and it's really fun. But uh, in, in 2019, a guy showed me the open G tuning. And I immediately wrote a song in that tuning, which made my last last record cold water waltz because uh the tuning totally opened up a new emotion for me or so it, it's just like like the, the different tuning makes it makes it feel different neat it's cool yeah so what do you have uh what do you have on the horizon what what's uh what's coming up for you anything cool you got any more you recording stuff or you got yeah i know i saw actually just before i got on here i saw that you you got some dates coming up in this weekend and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, knock on wood, but I'm always playing, which is awesome. I'm, I'm getting booked. I, I have opening shows. I'm going to finish uh, this month the the Pat Benatar and Neil Giraldo tour, which I opened for them last summer, and then I opened for them this summer. And uh, that's been like one of the most thrilling, like, thrilling tours of my whole life because – you think when I when when I started to get into music, Pat Benatar was such a big star and such a super talent that 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 like for me to just see my name associated with, with that tour is a real mind blowing thing, and they're really cool and uh, I love the fact that they they were just they're just they're just inducted in, in Rock Hall of Fame. These are just the fact that they they see me as compatible with with what they do is a really amazing thing. Uh, and then I'm doing dates with, with three dog night, then are speedwagon? Then 
next month I'm actually opening for, for Don McLean. Oh, who, wow. <laughs> when I started learning songwriting, Full circle. he was one of my main, yeah, he was one of my main guys. So that should be, that should be super cool. I've been working on a new record for the past probably three months, but I've been having to, to fit recording sessions into my tour schedules. So I've recorded in different cities with different producers in different places. So that's been an interesting process because I'm getting, you know, doing a lot of stuff remotely and trying to mix things remotely and, you know, sending comments via text and email and stuff. So it's, that's one of the blessings of, of technology. You know, you know, something gained is that I can do that. And, uh, that's been that's been cool. So the record's going to be more. My last record was, I put it out during COVID, so, so it's very folk because it was not the not the best time to release a party record. You know what I mean? <laughs> so for for my age group, maybe if I had like a college fan base, it's it's the best time to to, to release a party record, but not, not for my age group. So, but my new record that, that I've been working on, I just realized that like it's a lot of upbeat stuff. It's 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 a lot. It's a lot of uh, like, not necessarily happier, but there's drums on it and there's f- full production, and so it's all sounding good so far. Oh, good, good for you. I'm looking forward to it. <clears throat> Am I there yet? Yeah. So I'm gonna go with a couple. You have a couple. Oh, you have a whole schedule here. Oh well, in my in, in my head, I you know I sort of like I, I like I, that. I have, I have, yeah, very I do, professional. I do have some notes. I'm like you know. I mean, look at that. No, you're very prepared, which is awesome. Yeah, I really oh. appreciate it. Um, but there is a couple questions that I always ask uh, guests at the end of uh, each um, interview, and one is, okay. uh, "What are your top few, top few musical memories?" Mm-hmm. Oh, it's such a great question. Ah, uh, top few. So I, I can get up to three. Well, <laughs> whatever comes to mind, I don't care how many. Whatever, whatever comes to mind is that stick out to you. Like you think about your favorite gigs or whatever, or performances, or doesn't even have to be that anything. Well, there was one time uh, when I was in my in the church choir that that I first reference when we were talking about my first paying gig in in church choir in Buffalo, and I was probably sixteen, and I. I just, uh, you know, 16, you start to, like, you're brought up with with religion and spirituality, and then you you start to get, get your own brain rather than what's filled into your brain. You, you start to think for yourself, so you start to doubt things. And then I remember singing this, this one choral piece in the choir where I, I felt a sense of God because it sounded so beautiful, just how the choir sounded in the church. I think the church was even empty at, at that time, but it, it just sounded so amazing. And, and it was one of those things where I was like, wow, there's got to be something something out there. There, there has to be. And, and then uh, I got to open for John Prine, who I had idolized for a lot of years, but by the time I'd opened for him, I'd become friends with, with his manager. I tried to 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 get get on tours with him, but there was always... I didn't sell enough tickets to to kind of make his make his opening act status at that time, but it, but I was friends with, with his manager Al Bonetta, and so I used to sleep at Al's house all the time. I'd met John Prine 
a few times and it, it was kind of a always a nice conversation but I was always very I don't get intimidated by, by fame but but I get intimidated by greatness if somebody if I think somebody's great it freaks me out a little bit so I remember the first time I met John Prine I'd had a whole speech worked out and I saw him at, at the Newport Folk Festival it's when I finally you know shook his hand ready to speak to him I was like great show <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's looking at me like that's it. I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's all I got. Sorry, I walked away. Yeah, it's like, but uh, so, anyway, so, so I finally got to open for him in New Hampshire, and it, it was a it was part of a festival, and so I I asked his tour manager if I could, could watch his set from the side of the stage, and. uh he said, sure, yeah, it's fine. So, he said, I'm sitting there, there watching, and uh, and as, as John Prime was about to, to walk off for his encore, he, he walked straight over to me and said, Chris, do you, you want to grab my guitar and play with me on this song and and sing something? And so I got to go out and sing with him uh, for for his encore, and my mom had, had just died maybe three months earlier, and so she was a huge John Prine fan, and uh, my my whole family was, and my like like whole family extended family used to play John Prine at family family cookouts and stuff like that. So it was that was an amazing musical moment, uh, just for the sheer the sheer fact that I wanted to be. I want to be a fly on the wall for my own life. You know what I mean? I wanted to, I was like, no, that's cool. And then the other, the other cool musical moment, I mean, there's, there's been so many, uh, I'm trying to think, I sang with Colin Hay for, for, in his movie. I'm in one of the scenes singing with him. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my favorite song of his. And, uh, Let's see. I'm trying to think. That'd definitely be one. But then so many great times recording, and I'd sing with Rob Thomas on, on tour every night. Like, it used to be super cool. Like, for the and so my band w- was about to break. This is a long. What's the time frame here? Oh, I, I'm wide open. I feel that I don't want to keep you longer than free form. You got it all day. Okay. Well, the, well the. The push stars were were about to break up in probably two thousand and three, not break up out of any animus, but it it, it was just uh, we'd kind of run out of ideas as to how to how to keep pushing the boulder uphill, and and uh, there was a fan of mine who said, "Hey, I'll give you money to make one last push star." I told him we were kind of. He's running out of fumes. He said, I'll give you money to, to make one last Push Stars record. So I was like, yeah, deal, deal. And I had the songs you set to go. So we recorded with another friend of ours who went to, to, to the same college, Greg Collins. And so Greg had just worked with, with Matchbox 20 on their last record. And at that time, in 2003, Matchbox, you know, was one of the biggest bands in the country for sure. And 
they were doing arenas and uh so the engineer passed the record to, to Rob Thomas that we had just finished and so remember I, I was playing nephew with uh, I was playing tennis with my nephew from Buffalo and I got a phone call and it was Chris do you want to open for Matchbox 20 with the push stars do you want to do do this opening tour and so we we went from basically being like like no answers for where to go next to like we needed a tour bus we needed a crew we had no manager at that time like we had nothing but because uh like rob didn't really care what what was happening in terms of the industry stuff he he just he just wanted us with with them on tour he loved that that record so much that that he totally w- went to bat for us beyond you know he he sold us to to the agents the the, the promoters or whatever had to happen but he, he just made it happen so then suddenly we went from you know basically you know I'm playing tennis with my nephew to I'm playing in front of you know fifteen thousand people like literally the next like like two months later so um and so in the very last night of that run uh, we decided to pay matchbox back but by learning one of their songs so we learned one of their songs last night a tour and then rob sang rob walked out and surprised us and sang the second verse in the whole arena the second he he came out just just exploded in in applause, and we didn't know he was walking out. So that that was a super cool moment, uh, not not musical, but 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 just a cool, yeah, just a cool moment around music. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this so I feel like those can go those musical moments. It can be like meeting meeting your hero. You know, I I met mm-hmm. I met my hero. You know, and uh, who is it? Who was it? Oh, definitely someone. Well, he's a trumpet player, so I'm I'm, a, I'm actually oh, a trumpet player, oh. Mandard Ferguson. Oh, that's it. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, no, it was. I mean, uh, I I've had friends play on his band and and stuff like that, but oh, that's cool. Uh, I he didn't disappoint you. Oh no, super super sweet guy. You know, he's like, oh, you want an autograph? And I was like. I'm not an autograph guy, <laughs> but Maynard, I yeah. tell you, you know, Maynard, like, you know, like I always played the trumpet and then I heard you, I, my, I heard a recording of you play the trumpet and then I got so into the trumpet that now I teach music for a living. That's what I do. I teach public school music and, uh, I, I love it. And it's, you know, it sounds really silly to say you're the reason, but he's a huge reason why I, teach music today yeah. just because of hearing his recordings being like oh i want to play like that which yeah. hardly anybody can but whatever <laughs> right well music is always like, like we're passing batons to to each other i mean that, that's that's what it is i mean you, you hear something that inspires you and you create something that inspires somebody else and and that's and it's connects us and that's why it's, it's a beautiful thing i've been super lucky to do like 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 rob thomas is you would think for being one of the biggest stars, he would have a lot of uh, not not attitude, but 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 just be guarded. But he's absolutely 
not guarded and, and he loves people and he's so open hearted and, and, and he treats his, his fans like family. I mean, it, it's truly amazing to, to watch. Um, so yeah, I feel lucky that almost all the musicians who I've been associated with have been really good people too. And that's, that's like a, been a, that, that's been a blessing for sure. Lastly, uh, if you're you're on the road and you're listening to something, you're on iTunes, Spotify, whatever. What are you listening to? Mm-hmm. It, it depends what point of the day it is. Uh, if I if I have a super long drive, I'm going from uh, listening to you know mostly politics, which I listen to to a lot of POTUS on Sirius Radio. Uh, it's it's politics, but it's centrist, so they, they talk about both sides of issues. And and then, my if you were to see my, my playlists on Spotify, it's I have like Indian music, Brazilian music, uh, 1950s jazz, hipster music. I have uh, 1950s country, uh, Ethiopian music. I have so, so all kinds of playlists. I like pr- pretty eccentric stuff. I don't really listen to to the similar stuff that I write or sing or play. Like I, I try to stay away from that, so I'm not duplicating what 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 my peers do or trying not to duplicate that. Um, and I love a lot of 1950s music. I love Cuban music. Like I, I was obsessed with that for, for a bunch of years. Kind of. Cuban jazz and samba and um, I like rap music. I don't I like I like a lot of music, uh, all kinds. So 80s I have a great 80s playlist that 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 crushes. It's it's just uh you see the 80s had like a few you'd have to go through a few layers before you got to really d- deep good stuff. But then now a lot of the c- kind of deep good stuff has become mainstream like, oh, sure. like the cure or psychedelic furs and that that's that's the stadium music now but, but back then it used to be like like the dark clubs you'd go to kind of new wave dance clubs that would be you know not not the popular spot but over time that that's that's become more palatable and popular yeah so what what is it that you like about rap i'm curious about that well i love uh good lyrics i knew it and, I, rap. and that's why i asked the question i knew you were going to go there because then that, that is sort of i guess something else that i that i should have brought up earlier is i feel like you know and there's only a, a few people I, i'm not a lyric guy you know my wife yeah. my wife who's is also a musician but she she's the type of person she listens to a song once or twice and she can like say the lyrics back to you. And I'm like, what? You know, I'm the type of guy that I listen to it once or twice. I could play you or sing you the melody and probably figure out the chords on the piano, you know, after hearing it a couple of times, you know, like I'm more of like a a melody chordal, like analysis type of guy. But I will say your tunes and like Martin Sexton tunes, I, for some reason, your lyrics seem to stick with me more. And so, like, did you, were you, like, did you like English or poetry or anything growing up? Or how how do you approach writing lyrics? 
Yeah, so I, uh, I would say two, two teachers for being very influential to me be, becoming a songwriter. And one was a guy na- named Robert Mitchell who taught at my, at my high school, and, and he taught English history. So he would, what got me so excited about him was that he'd get so passionate about about the stories that we'd be studying, and he would he would get you interested in the story just to, just based on how he presented it. So he made storytelling seem like seem not not just important but essential. Like people needed it because that's how you learn and that's how you grow. And uh, and so I think that uh, I've always. Let, like storytelling, like that art form, and lyrics. I think lyrics mostly like if if you really notice lyrics if they're bad, because they they stand out. You recognize like like that rhyme scheme is too common. I've heard it a billion like rain and pain. We already know that 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 rhyme scheme has been done before. You, you have to think of something else. Um, so to me, the lyrics are always the the, the finishing touch. And it's kind of like filling in a crossword puzzle where you just find the, the, the right word, the right place. And there's all these tricks as to how, how to set up a good line by maybe you put, put something that's not as not a, it is intense beforehand. So you kind of kind of set it up with a little padding. Um, and then you save the point of the song to, to the end of the song. The third verse should, should be the one where you sum things up. But but the the best thing about songwriting is that there's really no rules, because you can. And it's funny because a lot of a lot of songwriters who have sat down to write with, they hear a lot of rules in their head. And I so I always say, well, the song like Mbop was a huge hit song. Mbop, <laughs> that's not a great lyric, as far as I know. <laughs> I'm not sure, but but so so you can relax and just just have fun with it and, and and see if there's something that you, you know, you enjoy saying. So I don't know if I, I even answered your no, question. Yeah, totally. Not, but... I, I'm just, was just so curious about that. And I sort of skipped over that on my list, but then the, the rap thing made me think of it. And I just had a feeling that about you just. Yeah. Well, a rap tune allows for more lyrics. Yeah. So if you're a lyricist who doesn't let, like rap, it doesn't make sense because it's like you recognize you can write double the the, the content in in a song if it's a fast spoken word lyric. So, um, but then there's a lot of bad rap, w- w- yeah, where the lyrics are probably the last thing that that, that the people think about or care about. Or sure. which when I was driving my kids to 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 school last year, my older son drives now, but but he couldn't then. So I'd say you can have a stereo. You, you play what you want. So, so they they like very, very modern rap. And I found myself be- becoming my parents. It's it's like, a, this is not music. Back when MC Hammer was around, like that, that was real music. Uh, but this, I mean, come on. <laughs> Back when Ice Cube and Ice T and that was real music. Yeah. No, my kids were little. I just remember to like, they were into like, you know, uh, Miley Cyrus and uh, you know Katy Perry and stuff, and I was like, I yeah. can actually sort of get into this a little bit. Actually, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm a little weird, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, Chris, I I really appreciate you doing this, man. I, I this is just so cool for me. I'm geeking out a little bit because I'm uh, I'm a little bit of a fan, but I also 
Just, oh, that's awesome. Uh, well, I shouldn't say a little bit. Of, I'm a fan, but you know. Uh, I think we should. Ta- I think we should talk about Martin Sexton because he's how you heard of me from. Oh, right. I, I yeah. I mean, let's. I mean, I please. I reached out to Martin, and I was like, he he's he's too he's too. I can't get him, but <laughs> I, no, he's I, too big. I, he's, yeah, too yeah, big. Yeah. he's too popular. But he, but yeah. Well, he. I think he. When I think I, he has perfect so, pitch. Let's let's start with that. I think he has perfect pitch. I've never heard that no, he's dude like, sing even close to one note out of tune. Unreal. No, he's music. No, he's musically so gifted and vocally so gifted, and his fingers and guitar playing so gifted. I mean, when I was when I was talking earlier about that 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 time period when I quit my job and started just doing gigs and just just from wherever I, I I could get booked possibly. I started to meet some of the people on the Boston folk scene mm. and Martin Sexton was just starting out then also. So a friend of mine said, you know, Jim Infantino, who Jim Infantino is? I don't think so. Well, he's a great, he's a great Boston songwriter who lived with Martin, was friends with, with Martin. He said, let's go see Martin play a gig. I'd become friends with, with Jim back then Yes, we went to see Martin uh, feature for an open mic night at the Black Rose, which was a bar about a block away from Passim in Harvard Square. And uh, we went to see Martin. There were maybe 30 people there, 20 people there, open mic night feature. And uh, Martin said, hey, you know, once a month I have a little songwriter circle on my back porch if you want to come join us. So I would go there and we'd... We don't sit in a circle like maybe five or six Boston songwriters would just sit and get, kind of feed off of each other's ideas at where the where the best gig was locally, where the new gig was. Uh, maybe maybe should add, add a bridge or another chorus or that that kind of stuff. But that that became uh, almost like a songwriter support group. <laughs> and so, as Martin became a really close friend of mine, and when. Uh, when I first w- went solo, if the band broke up, I remember I was like very fearful because our band wasn't doing like incredible business across the whole country. We had a few markets where we, we would go and be kind of legit, you know, local, you know, local rock stars. And then the ne- next town over, nobody knew us. So if you would take a fraction of that, like lead singer goes solo, you take like one fifth of what that business was. And I was looking at my life, like, I don't know how I'm going to make a living off of this. And, and Martin was, was just, you're doing awesome business then. And he still does now, but, but he, he said, Chris, why don't you open my, my tour? He just suddenly I went from being in this very, very desperate state to like 30 gigs at the best kind of singer songwriter venues across the whole country so he's meant a lot to me and we we became friends outside of music and and we we vacationed together and and we've uh sung together so many nights and hung together backstages for many many years and i've always seen him as as a mentor even though he started maybe like like a year before me but we both kind of had parallel lives uh where we sign major label deals and still do it. And, but, but he's, he has a very good kind of natural instinctual business mind. 
so he kind of gets a part of the music business that that I don't necessarily get. It's whenever I'm I'm around him, I pick his brain. It's like he's always a year ahead of me <laughs> in terms of what what you should do, what you shouldn't do, that kind of stuff. So, but 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 he he's just an awesome guy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had I I. It was all. It was a shock. I remember I went to go see him one night at the Wilbur Theater in Boston, and uh, yeah, and then they were like, "All right, if you'd like to meet Martin Sexton, uh, go in line." I'm like, "What? Yeah, I'll go get in line. Let's go." <laughs> and he was really yeah. nice. Like a, you know, I I heard of him through my best friend from high school, and he's like. Ah, I listened to this guy Martin Sexton, and he played me a couple recordings. I'm like, oh my gosh, this this guy's great! And then he like sent yeah. me like a, you know, this is ages ago. He like sent me this random YouTube clip of him like playing Hey Joe backstage, and I'm like, this guy is hip, man. Yeah. And then I, yeah. uh, so I had Martin like I. I Martin recorded, he said, like, Merry Christmas, recorded a little thing and wished my friend Merry Christmas on a uh, on an iPhone video. It was so cool. He was just nice. super nice, oh, down-to-earth guy. And, um, yeah. The the other thing was when I was opening for him, he, he, he's such a good performer that that it was – he was definitely, definitely a quick wake-up call for me. Like, I, I got to step up my game as a performer. But, but I learned a lot of little tricks from him how how to read a room and what 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 things make a show better just 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 simple things where i, I would see him walk in, into a club and and see if the light wasn't pointed properly where you could see the singer's face he'd be like hey can can you move that light and make it hit my face so and stuff like that but you you'd be surprised what what a difference that stuff makes for a good show yeah yeah, I've seen him in so many. I've seen him in, in a bunch of different places. I've seen him in Carnegie Hall. I've seen him at the Berkeley Performance Center, um, which yeah. ju- I mean, just awesome performance venues. But then I've also seen him at the Wellfleet Beachcomber, where it was like it yeah. was almost. In fact, I I couldn't stand that. Even though it's a, an incredible hang, uh, it's not a place where I want to see Martin Sexton. You know, but but to your point he he completely changed his type of set list he came out and he started doing stevie tunes and he started you know doing willick around in circles and stuff like that oh yeah well i have to say the the most memorable gig memorable gig that i ever did with him was in it was like probably 2002 and he was you know show booked at, at the grog shop in cleveland and, and to the grog shop it's gone now but it used it was just a little divey rock club, and and Cleveland is a weird town because like, it's a classic rock town. So they, they there's no radio stations where there weren't back then. Definitely, any radio stations that that played new music. So you'd be going there in a wing and a prayer. You typically like, like so push stars would go there, and maybe our, our peak show there would draw a hundred people in Cleveland, who all heard about the, the band from word of mouth just just, just passing through and, and so i think that like the grog shop the, the grog shop was like a 200 cap room and people for martin's you know show like so my set was good you know i had learned how to work a room standing up solo but by just being a little looser and a little more fun a little bit and and so martin walked out and like 
I'd been with a rock band for, for a decade, and I'd never seen a room kind of rock that hard as for his solo set. Whereas one guy and one guitar, but but it felt like like you're watching almost like a punk rock show, because they were so into it and it was so hot and so sweaty. They were standing up, so it wasn't like a a cushy dinner theater. It was like a divey rock club, but just uh, so yeah, he he's masterful. I, I I've been so lucky. Like I went from working with Martin for for many many years to to working with Colin Hay for many years. So I see both of them as kind of bookends of, of awesomeness where I got to learn a lot of stuff from. Yeah. So uh, super, super lucky. Yeah. Well, I, I wish you nothing but the best, my friend. I, I'm, I really appreciate you doing this. And, uh, I just, nice. thank you so much. And, uh, uh, it's, I hope people go to Chris com. check where he's playing. He's playing all over the country. And, uh, yeah, do it. Thanks, man. Thanks for the great question. Yeah, thank too. you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Everything Music Ed podcast. Be sure to check out future episodes as we talk to other educators from different teaching environments and cover areas of instruction such as concert band, jazz band, marching band, chorus, orchestra, general music, music tech, special needs, and much more. The theme music for the Everything Music Ed podcast is Jig, composed and arranged by Wally Minko. Jig is performed by Wayne Bergeron and can be found on his album, Full Circle. The Everything Music Ed podcast logo was created by Sarah Goulart.